Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer. A couple of announcements. Don't forget there's a reception for Phil Smith uh, for his retirement from the Marine Corps on Sunday. And then also, the only thing I can get so far, the only information I've got on Margaret, uh, who translates for Jim Myers over in Kiev, is that uh, it was just uh, uh, one person said it's extreme arrhythmia, the other person said it wasn't, but I think she's, I'm, I'm on, I can't find out if she's still in the hospital, but we need to keep praying for her. And also for this visa problem. All of you remember last year when they were having a problem with the visa law, and even a lot of Ukrainians didn't know exactly how it was being applied. And I talked to Jim Dumas today, and he said that from what they've discovered over the last year, they weren't sure how to apply it because they didn't have everybody's records computerized. And now they apparently have a computerized system so that when you come into the country and they scan your passport, they know how many days you've been in the country. When you leave, they scan it again. And so with the uh, computerized records, uh, there's going to be some new level of enforcement. So they're not sure how that really is going to affect uh, either uh, the Myers or him. Now, they have different kinds of visas, so um, uh, we're just not sure. So we need to be in prayer uh, for them and for, for that ministry. And Jim continues to travel around uh, the U.S. right now. They're up somewhere in the area of Washington State, um, Vancouver, somewhere up there, and we'll be back here in Houston in just about four weeks, so sometime around the midpoint of uh, midpoint of February, so we can be be in prayer for them. And I think that's about it for um, for announcements. We still don't know when there's going to be any work here, but just be ready. Make sure you signed up. I just want to remind everybody that there's sign-up sheets out in the foyer here and in the back. Sign up so we can contact you if we have uh, bad weather, some something, some emergency. Some people didn't get the word when we got rained out a couple of weeks ago. So uh, we need to have your contact information so we can make sure you're notified. All right, let's have a few moments of silent prayer, then I will open in prayer. Lord, we are indeed grateful for your word that it has revealed to us uh, who you are. It has revealed to us who we are as creatures that you created your image and likeness and that it reveals to us the the mission that you have given us in terms of our own uh, spiritual life and in terms of our uh, role as image bearers, even though there are distortions and problems due to sin, nevertheless, we still have responsibilities as individuals, as members of the human race, to uh, continue to uh, expand the dominion of man over over the planet. And Father, we pray that uh, that 
Uh, we can continue to pursue that, continue to understand what that means, especially in the realm of thought and in the realm of our own personal spiritual life and spiritual growth. And we pray that as we study this evening that you will challenge us with these things as we uh, study your word in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, we are in Hebrews. I want to start off where I did last week, looking at the uh, the organization here of this uh, uh, 12th chapter. Um, and, and this is the um, uh, fifth major section, the last section, in uh, the book of Hebrews. It began in 11.1, goes down to the end of the uh, next chapter. We are t- tonight in the section between 12.12 and 12.17. So as you can tell, we are... Uh, we're coming close to the end of our study of Hebrews. The focal point, as we've seen in the outline, is first there's an instructional section, then there is a what some might call an application section. Really, it is a challenge to application uh, to put in, to show how the teaching emphasis is to be put into practice in the life, and within those practical challenges, those exhortations. There's sometimes a warning, a dire warning of the dangers that can come to a believer's spiritual life if he fails to continue to grow and persevere in the spiritual life. You can't lose your salvation, uh, but you can come under uh, divine discipline. You can come under, in extreme forms, a sin unto death. You can also put in jeopardy. Uh, rewards and inheritance. So the teaching section was in 11, 1 through 40. The practical challenge is in chapter 12, verses 1 through 29. And we're in that third section there, uh, which really brings a conclusion, having set Christ as our example of endurance in the first two verses, and then taking that metaphor of running a race that is was introduced there in 12.1, and then developing that within the context of discipline or really training. That's the main idea here in Paiduo, the idea of being trained in order to fulfill a task. And so we're all in a, a training program by, that God has designed for us uh, spiritually to eventually prepare us for service, not just as mature believers now in in this life, but also in of the millennial kingdom and on into eternity. We have to develop that forward, uh, that forward focus. So life, spiritual life really happens when you're mature. I mean, how many of us can remember? Some of you, I think, are going to squeeze your eyebrows together. But back when you were eight or nine years old or 12 or 13, you wanted to be treated like an adult because you knew that real life and the experiences of life and, and the real joy of life occurred as an adult when you were treated as an adult and not as children. Yet in the spiritual life, it seems like most Christians would rather stay in diapers and act like an infant than take on the responsibilities of mature spiritual life and spiritual growth. And, um, and so they, they just, they have no vision for going forward in the Christian life. And if they do, often it gets, it gets muddied. Or, or the sad thing is, uh, it, it's, it just sort of gets stunted. And you see a lot of people who will think that, oh, we have great Bible study at our church. And then they come listen to somebody like me or Charlie Clough or somebody else, and they go, oh, we, that's a little heavy for me. 
And the reality is, if you go back over over church history, you look at really mature believers even today, you, you can't ever grow spiritually beyond the level of teaching that you have, and that applies in the secular realm as well as in the spiritual realm. And if you're only taught uh, content that never gets you beyond the first grade, you'll never get beyond the first grade. And some people come in and they think, oh, this content's just too heavy. Well, you, you can catch on. I, I'm just amazed how many people, no matter what their background is, no matter how limited their education might be, no matter how limited perhaps their uh, native intelligence or IQ might be, I've seen people who don't have or barely have room temperature IQ and who have all sorts of social and educational deficits uh, recognize that what they need to do is just have the consistency to be in Bible class night after night, week after week, and years down the road, they, they still might not make it out in the world of high finance or uh, you know, have sophisticated jobs, but spiritually, they have a better handle on the Word of God and the spiritual life than people with, uh, with uh, high IQs and advanced education and all kinds of things because the spiritual life is not based on those kinds of human factors. It's based on the grace of God as we're going to uh, see in our passage uh, this evening. Now, last time I talked some about the fact that you have this metaphor of a race, an athletic event, running through this this whole chapter, uh, starting in verse 1. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. And I saw, uh, I had some, we went into more detail last week on a metaphor, but from Garner's modern Amer- uh, American usage, we learned that a figure of speech uh, in which a metaphor is a figure of speech in which one thing is called by the name of something else or is said to be that other thing. Unlike similes, which use words like as like or as, um, metaphorical comparisons are implicit. They're not explicit. And so we have this, this uh, uh, implied comparison here between living the Christian life and running a race. There has to be training. There has to be discipline. Uh, there has to be a level of self-mastery. But there's also struggles. There's times when we feel overwhelmed, the times we're weary, times we're tired, times when it just seems like no matter what we do, things, the world system just uh, uh, just gets on top of us. And that's where these believers are. And I stress that because the more I've gotten into these next five verses, and and um, the more I realize the focal point here isn't so much on uh, on uh, confession of sin or restoration from being out of fellowship, which of course is always part of the spiritual life. It's dealing with people who are tired of persevering. They're tired. They've been enduring and enduring and enduring. They've been gutting it out, gutting it out, gutting it out, and they just want to quit. And uh, so the focal point here is to to put out in front of them, uh, once again, as a, as a motivator, what gets lost if you quit, number one. And number two, the importance and the priorities that we need to have in order to keep going forward. And so last time we looked at this, just got into this first verse in Hebrews 12, 12. Therefore, reaching a conclusion within this uh, uh section of application and challenge. Therefore, strengthen the hands which hang down. And so these are just droopy hands. 
They just don't have the energy to pull up their hands and do any more uh, work. That's the, that's, the, that's the effort there. They just are tired and feeble knees, so they've got droopy hands and, and wobbly knees, and they're, they just can't make it in the race anymore. We saw that, that, that this imagery of hands that hang down, weak hands, really comes out of various Old Testament passages. Looked at uh, these passages in their background in Isaiah 35, 3 and 4, and also in Zephaniah 3.16, again, let not your hands be weak. Job 4.3, there were also uh, similar idioms in uh, extra-biblical uh, works of that time. Sirach 25.23 uses the same idiom of a battle-weary group that's uh, lost their will to go forward, lost their desire to persevere. Uh, Philo, a, uh, a Jewish writer in the intertestamental period and into the first century, uses a sim- similar idiom uh, to describe the Israelites in the wilderness who wanted to give up their struggle and go back to Egypt. And uh, he compares them to weary athletes who just want to drop their hands through weariness and not go forward. And so that's that's the imagery that's there is to uh, strengthen the hands which hang down and feeble knees. Now, when we look at that verse, the uh, command there is to to, to strengthen. Uh, actually, I've got that on the wrong slide. Uh, the command to strengthen is an aorist imperative. Now, aorist imperatives, aorist imperatives are emphasized priority. It's it's emphasizing the immediacy of an action. A present tense imperative, present tense usually emphasizes ongoing action, so the present tense emphasizes that a certain action can be uh, part of an ongoing, should be part of an ongoing characteristic habit pattern, standard operating procedure in the life of a believer. Now, if I'm addressing this group over here, and they haven't prayed at all, they don't do any prayer, then if I address them, I'm going to use an aorist imperative because they need to be, it needs to be brought to their attention, this needs to be a priority, and they need to get with it. But this group over here has been praying, and they need to be encouraged, so I would put the same command in a present imperative, because they need to just be reminded that this needs to be standard operating procedure, ongoing action in their life. So the the use of an aorist imperative or, or a present imperative depends on the audience and the writer's emphasis. So if you're looking in one book in the New Testament and it's an aorist imperative, that doesn't mean uh, that that's a, stating a, a universal principle that's true for all. It's the writer addressing the immediate context uh, of his readers. Now, what also happens in a course of a passage is you'll have an aorist imperative that emphasizes the, 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 the priority, and it's followed by present tense imperatives. This is typical in, in the writer of uh, in, in James, in the epistle of James, is aorist imperatives to emphasize the priority, and then it's followed by present imperatives because the present imperatives help to understand how to implement the priority, uh, the priority command. And that's uh, similar to what we have here in verse, verses uh, uh, 12 through 17, is the beginning with this aorist 
uh, aorist imperative in verse 12 to strengthen two things, the hands that hang down and the feeble knees. But the point there is, is they're growing weary. That's the point back in uh, verse 3, the command to consider him, focus on Jesus, think about him, reflect upon the struggles he went through in his uh, humanity. Consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. And what's their problem is they've become weary and discouraged in their souls. They're ready to bail out on Christianity and just go back into uh, into legalistic uh, Judaism. So verse 12 here says gives us the priority, strengthen the hands which hang down and the feeble knees. Get tough. Wake up. Now, how are we going to do that? You can't just do that by telling people to get tough. And then verse 13 says, Make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be dislocated but rather be healed. Now, here, to understand this, we have to go back to what? To the athletic metaphor. They've been running a marathon, and now they're just out of gas. They're, 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 they want to fall out. They want to quit. They've got three miles to go, and they're ready to buy into any rationalization that comes their way that would just make it easier and give them a, an excuse to quit. And so the command there is to strengthen the hands and the knees. Now, how do you do that? Well, you come in by making straight paths for your feet. Don't get off into some something that is going to take you through a winding course to get to the end zone. Make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame uh, may not be dislocated. There already have problems if you're running in a marathon and you begin to experience um, uh, some muscle uh, pains, cramps, uh, other, other problems. Uh, if you don't take care of it, then it will get worse. And that's what he's saying here is you, you have to recognize there's a problem. The problem is they're wanting to get off course into false doctrine and go back into Judaism. But if they get off course into false doctrine, that's the crooked paths, and instead of just having a limp and being lame, they risk becoming spiritually crippled so that they can't make make the end zone, so that uh, what's a minor problem becomes a more severe problem in the spiritual life. And the way to resolve that is to get straight with doctrine. That's the point. They're getting off course, and they have forgotten the superiority of Christ. We've studied that earlier in Hebrews. They've forgotten the superiority of his priesthood. They've forgotten the superiority of the completed work that he did on the cross. And they're thinking that if they go back to Judaism and the ritual, that that somehow is more meaningful. And you run into that problem all the time with people that somehow think that certain in certain kinds of environments, worship environments, appeal to them emotionally, and so when they go to those churches and they come out, then they feel like they've worshipped. And this this can run the gamut from high church worship, where there's more formalism and ritual, 
to low church worship that is uh, much more uh, free and easy, and you have a lot of contemporary Christian Christian music, and it just seems a lot less uh, a lot less rigorous. Uh, a lot less demanding in terms of taking notes or it just seems a lot more fun. And every now and then we all like to sit down with, uh, uh and have a good meal of ice cream rather than, uh, e- eating our vegetables and salad and everything like we should. And so th- things like that, you go to a church like that and it may seem to be a little more, to help you be a little more spiritual sometimes, but the diet's lousy. And by the time you, you're, you're there for two or three years, your spiritual life is just shriveled up into, into nothing. And that's the kind of thing that was, uh, was a danger to those that the writer of Hebrews was addressing. So he challenges them they need to make straight paths for your feet. Now, when I made this slide, for some reason, I put the verb for the verse 13 onto the verse 12 slide. And the verb for making straight paths for your feet is anorthao. Anorthao, I don't know why I got this confused. It should be a present active imperative. Probably got a phone call in the middle of doing this. It's a, a, I think it's a, it's a present active imperative here. It's a, um, and which means it's standard operating procedure. The aorist is in the previous verse. Therefore, strengthen the hands. Uh, it should be, uh, see where I got confused. The strengthen is an aorist and this is just the verb over here. So just ignore that part of it. It is a standard operating procedure command from anorthao. Orthao is the root, is the word that means to make straight. Can anybody think of a word in English that comes from that? Orthodontist, to straighten out your teeth. So, uh, Anorthao means uh, to uh, restore some that prefix the ana at the beginning has the idea of restoring a straightness or erectness to build something up again after it has fallen, to rebuild it, to restore it, uh, to restore something to an erect position from a bit position or straighten up. So that's the idea. It makes straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be dislocated but rather uh, be healed. So the straight paths, though, are related to correct doctrine. The flaw, the basic flaw that the that was uh, threatening the these Hebrew Christians was a fundamentally a doctrinal issue, and so um, so they needed to straighten out their doctrine. And if you're on the straight path of doctrine, the straight path of the word then there is restoration, healing, and the word there for healing is hiaomai, which basically means that there's a, a recovery from when we have been uh, spiritually bruised and beaten up. But apart from that, there's no recovery. And we studied what we have to do to recover in terms of the problem-solving uh, devices, those uh, ten spiritual skills that help us to recover. When we put those into place, then that straightens us out. But it only comes when we're within the when we're on the path of of straight doctrine. Now again, this this verse is not something that just pops into the this these thoughts is not just something that pops into the mind of the writer of Hebrews, but that um uh, it comes from the Old Testament, Hebrews, I mean, Proverbs 4.26 in the Greek. It's a li- Sometimes the Septuagint 
reads a little differently than either the Masoretic text or the Hebrew. Uh, but yet when the writer of the New Testament goes back and takes a verse out of the Septuagint, even though it's not an accurate translation of the, uh, of the Masoretic text or the, or the original Hebrew, nevertheless, it's stating something that is true, and God the Holy Spirit uses that and uh, incorporates that within, within Scripture. So at the point that the writer, that the New Testament writer takes something and incorporates that within what he is writing, then at that point it becomes uh, inspired, infallible truth. So Proverbs 4.26 says, Make straight paths for your feet and keep your path straight. So it is uh, these, these second-person plural uh, imperatives all through this section emphasize the individual responsibility of every believer to keep on course. It's not your uh, wife's job to keep you straightened out doctrinally. Sometimes wives need to be reminded of that. It's not the husband's job to keep the wife straightened out doctrinally. He's the leader in the home, but he's not the Holy Spirit in, in, in her life, which reminds me of a story about uh, children's Sunday school class where uh, the child was going home after Sunday school and the uh, parents were ta- interacting with the kids as they should. What did you learn today in Sunday school? And the child said, well... We were studying about quilts, and the parents went, quilts? Where's where's that in the Bible? And uh, so they called up the uh, Sunday school teacher and said, uh, you know, our little girl was saying that we were, they were studying about quilts in Sunday school. What's going on? And he said, no, we weren't studying about quilts. Jesus said when he left, he would send another comforter. But the Holy Spirit is the comforter or the paraclete, not the husband, not the wife, the husband's the leader in the home, that's true, but he doesn't replace the Holy Spirit. He doesn't try to function like the Holy Spirit. Each believer is responsible for their own spiritual life. You can't blame the church. You can't blame the pastor, although you do, um, but you, you're not supposed to. It is your responsibility. Now, back to Hebrews 12:13. Here we have this same basic root word here for orthos, to make it a habit or make something straight. And we need to make those straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be dislocated, but rather be healed. So at this point, we've got two commands to strengthen the droopy hands and the wobbly knees. That's the aorist tense. That's the priority. Then to make straight paths, which is the present ongoing characteristic, the uh, present tense. Now, in the next verse, we're going to add in two more commands, one verb, but two distinct objects of the verb. One command, uh, two distinct objects of the command. And the, um, and the object uh, is peace in the first instance and spiritual growth in the second instance. So in Hebrews 12:14 we read, pursue peace with all people and holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Now, if you just took that verse out of context and you interpreted that on the basis of uh, 21st century, late 20th century, early 21st century evangelical idiom, you would walk away thinking that you just couldn't get to heaven if you weren't pursuing peace with everybody 
trying to smooth over all the conflicts and make sure everybody gets along. And if you were not pursuing holiness, and that's part of the things, this is one of those verses that gave rise to what was called the holiness movement back in the 19th century, that we have to pursue holiness. If we haven't achieved holiness or sanctification, then we're not saved. We're not going to go to heaven because you can't see Jesus if you haven't pursued peace and holiness. And it looks like that's what this is, this verse is saying. And this is a problem that we often have is that there are certain verses in the Bible that when they get tra- translated, they appear because of the choice of words that are used by the translator, influenced by his theology, they appear to have a works orientation to them, that you have to do certain things in order to be saved. And if you don't do those things, if you don't have the right kind of morality in your life, if you don't have the right kind of uh, a theology, then you're not justified. You're not going to go to heaven. That, that the heaven's only for those people who have the uh, right kind of life and don't commit the uh, uh, certain kinds of sin. And that's not at all what this verse is saying. The verse is addressed to people, as we've seen again and again and again and again, all the way through Hebrews. It's addressed to people who are saved, justified, who have settled that at the point of faith alone in Christ alone, and they are going to go to heaven. But what does this mean that if we don't pursue peace with all people and holiness, then we won't see the Lord? Well, we have to understand this a little bit, so we'll break it down grammatically to begin with. First of all, we have a command, pursue peace with all people. The word people is in italics in your text. Actually, it's just pursue peace with all, but people is understood. It's with everyone. And it's, as we'll see in a minute, it's with, it's not talking about with, this isn't an application to believers. It's not a one another passage. It's with everyone. That means that you have to pursue peace with all who are in your circle of life, whether that includes people you agree with, disagree with, like, dislike, whatever. Don't let personal preferences become a distraction that leads to arrogance and hostility in those relationships, because ultimately what that does is it negatively impacts your opportunity to witness to people and to be a good uh, testimony to the Lord Jesus Christ. So the, wor- the verb here that controls this, this introductory clause is dioko, meaning to pursue, and again, it's a present active imperative. Second person plural addressed to the whole group, uh, make it a habit to pursue peace with all. Now, that word dioko has the idea of moving rapidly and decisively toward an object. Sometimes it means to hasten, to run, to press forward. Uh, other instances, it, it's, it has the idea of pursuing something, striving for something, making that your, your objective, your priority, uh, aspiring to something. And what this is aspiring to is is peace, arene, peace with all, all men. And this is not talking about bringing people the gospel, which is the message of reconciliation. That's 2 Corinthians chapter 5, that we're all ambassadors for Christ, br- preaching the gospel of reconciliation. This is not talking about being an evangelist 
and bringing the gospel of peace into people's lives. It is talking about, rather, it is talking about a behavior that is not going to allow non-essentials to disrupt and relationships and to become divisive because that is an outgrowth of arrogance uh, which produces all kinds of things from anger to bitterness to resentment. People get on uh, varieties of, of ego trips because they just always have to be right about uh, this or about that or about something else. And we have to keep our focus on the real issue, which always has to do with our personal testimony and relationship to the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the reason I say that is that when you compare Scripture with Scripture and you see how this word is used in some other contexts, for example, in 1 Thessalonians 5.15, it indicates the same thing. In uh, 1 Thessalonians 5.15, we have a command that is addressed to believers, see to it that no one repays another evil for evil. Don't get caught up in vindictiveness. Vindictiveness is the, is the result, the child of resentment and anger and uh, hostility towards people. See to it that no one repays another w- with evil for evil, but always seek, there's our word dioko again, seek after that which is good for another, for one another, that's believers, and for all. Same phrase that we have in, in Hebrews. So we are to uh, pursue peace, which is defined here as seeking after that which is good for all. Now, that's always an interesting idea. Sometimes I've defined love as in those terms. I think that is the best definition I've ever heard of what genuine love is. Genuine love is always seeking that which is best, that which is right in an absolute sense for the object of your love. But you can get into real trouble if you don't have an understanding of object uh, of objective values. Because if there's no God, there's no absolutes, there's no... Uh, there's no values that go above personal preference, then I can look at somebody and say, well, I know exactly what's right for you, but that's nothing more than arrogance, and then I'm going to treat, uh, deal with them on the basis of what I think is right for them, in my opinion, and that's nothing more than a self-servingness, and that runs contrary to the definition of uh, our descriptions of love that we have in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, uh, verses 4 through 8, or 4 through 7. Uh, love is not arrogant. Love is not boasting. Love is not self-oriented. So there has to be an external objective standard in order that, that so that if I'm going to do what is right for you or treat you on the basis of what is good in an absolute sense for you, or, uh, then I have to have an understanding of what that is. It's not something that is good for me because I think it is, but because that's what God sets as that uh, external standard. So we're to seek after that which is good for one another, not in a subjective sense, but in an objective sense, and not just good for one another, which relates to believers, but also for all. So when we look at this idea of pursuing peace with all, that's why I say this isn't talking about a gospel presentation, this concept of pursuing peace, love, doing what is good for others. is It's the same for believer versus unbeliever, and it all comes back to uh, what Jesus emphasized in John 13, 34, and 35, that he gave a new commandment to the church. 
the old commandment from Leviticus uh, chapter uh, uh, 13, 18, that we're to love one and uh, love our neighbor as ourselves is transformed to a much higher standard. We are to love one another even as Christ loved the church. But what we see here is even though in most of those passages the focus is on loving one another, that love for one another is also applied to those who are outside the body of Christ. Now, we often talk about these this in terms of two words. The first word is impersonal love, and the second word is unconditional love. Now, the reason that these two words are used is because it's really difficult to define love. Take some time, sometime if you don't believe me, and try to write a definition. Uh, years ago when I was working over at, uh, at RB Theme Bible Ministries and writing, uh, writing books, uh, one of the manuscripts that I was uh, set up on for a while was on uh, writing a glossary. It is hard to write good definitions. It's very difficult. You have to, they should be concise. You can't get into, you're not saying everything there is to say about the word. You're just giving giving the core meaning uh, of of a particular word. And so writing a definition is uh, is sometimes very difficult when you deal with abstract nouns. And we can describe things about abstract nouns, but sometimes defining them is different. Defining some, a word is not the same as describing it. And, and most of the time when you ask somebody to define love, what you get is a description. This is what love does in this situation. That's what 1 Corinthians 13 does. It describes characteristics of love, but it doesn't define love. And then when you get into Webster's or the Oxford English Dictionary or Collins Dictionary or any of the other dictionaries that are out there, and you look up love, you don't get a good definition. They define it as an emotion or a feeling of affection towards somebody. Now, that's one kind of love, but if real love is based on simply an affection, simply on an emotion, then that's that's not very solid. That's uh, always shifting and changing. One day I can wake up and not feel very good and and uh, the, don't feel like I love anybody. The next day I can feel like I love the whole world and isn't everybody wonderful. And um, so love can't be based on something that is that uh, that changeable. That mutable, it has to be based on something that never changes, and that's the character of God. So we use these words, and sometimes people get a little confused. Impersonal is a word that does not mean, uh, that's not emphasizing the fact that it's like, like a machine or a computer and that a person is not involved. It's not depersonalized, okay? Impersonal means that you don't have to have a personal relationship with the person you are showing love to. The person who works the cash register at the grocery store, the person who just cuts you off in traffic, the the most convicting part of course is always the Indian guy who's on the other end of the uh you know the customer service line. Um, these are persons and how we relate to them is on a personal level, but we don't know them personally. So impersonal love emphasizes the fact that it's not directed simply to people we know, and it's not based on what we know about people. 
It's based on our own character and our own uh, our own person uh, uh, personality. It is a personal. It is always, therefore, in that sense, a personal love, but it doesn't involve a personal relationship. It's just hard to find the words to say that. It's unconditional because it's not set up on conditions. It's not saying oh, I'm only going to love you if you're have the right kind of education or you're dressed the right way or you have the right kind of tattoos or the absence of tattoos or your haircut's a certain way or you smell a certain way or all those other things. It's directed to the person no matter uh, what because it's predicated on the love that God demonstrated at the cross which was directed towards all of us. And in terms, and uh, you know, we could, we could do one of those nice little touchy-feely uh, kinds of exercises that you often get in, in some churches and have everybody sit around and think about the worst, most offensive person you've ever seen and, and how revolt, rev, what, what's the word, how uh, the, the revulsion that they created in your own um, in your own person. You saw that person, you just wanted to just, just recoil and just shrivel up and get away from them. Well, when you think about how you as a sinner are attractive to God, it's worse than that. You're more offensive to him than the most offensive person you've ever run into. Uh, you, you are more obnoxious to God than the most obnoxious person you've ever run into. Uh, you, you, the, the stench of sin that follows us around is just an offense to God all the time because of his righteousness. But he didn't love us by providing a solution to the sin problem, by asking us to change that first, by somehow uh, morally cleaning up our life so that we would become acceptable to him and then he would save us because we can never clean it up enough to be morally acceptable uh, to God. And people always fall into the trap of thinking that, and that's why the first warning that comes in the next verse is to watch carefully or examine yourself carefully lest anyone fall short of the grace of God. Because it's so easy to slip out of a grace orientation into some form of legalism. Now, when we look at this verse, it goes on to say, pursue peace with all people, and secondly, to pursue holiness. Now, the emphasis is on the verb that we are to be running after something. We're to make it a priority. It is a obje- primary objective in our life to achieve these goals. The first goal of peace with all and the second goal of holiness or sanctification, without which no one will see the Lord. Now, we'll get into that phrase uh, in just a minute, but right now I just want to focus on understanding this this phrase, hagiosmos, or this word hagiosmos, which is from the root uh, hagios, meaning to be sanctified, holy, which actually means to be set apart to the service of God. We translate it with words that are pretty antiquated now and that a lot of people on the street just don't understand. Holiness, consecration, sanctification. All these words basically mean to be set apart, to be useful to the service of God to be set apart, useful to the service of God. And in this passage, it's not talking about sanctification in terms of uh, absolute sanctification at the point of salvation, but experiential sanctification. 
And where we're going with this, as you can see, is going to have something to do with inheritance because the, per, the, the personal example that the writer of Hebrews is going to use in verse 16 is Esau, who for a morsel of food, he just loved that little red lentil soup, he sold his birthright. He was willing to give up his long-term inheritance for present-time gratification. So we're not talking about getting in the family. He never lost his position in the family. What we're talking about is losing inheritance, jeopardizing rewards, and the position in the kingdom. So it's a phase two sanctification issue. Now, the spiritual life, uh, we'll talk about three stages or three phases. Phase one uh, takes place at the cross, and we call that justification. When a person trusts in Christ as Savior at that instant, they are uh, imputed or given the righteousness of Christ, and God declares them to be justified. It can't be lost because it's not based on what we do in terms of moral actions or ritual. It's based on the work of Christ and his character. Phase two has to do with the spiritual life or spiritual growth. This takes place from the time that we first trust Christ as Savior until we are face-to-face with the Lord. We call that the spiritual life. This ends at phase three when we are absent from the body face-to-face with the Lord at either the rapture or physical death. Now, some other terms that we use for this, first of all, positional sanctification. Because we're identified with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection, we are positionally and absolutely sanctified, set apart for God. Can't be lost, can't lose it. The process of the spiritual life we call progressive sanctification because we move from being obedient to being disobedient, and disobedient to obedient. And then third, ultimate sanctification is when we're absent from the body, face-to-face with the Lord, no more sin nature. Another way we look at this is the uh, phrase, freed from the penalty of sin at salvation. We're not going to head to the lake of fire. And progressive sanctification, we learn how to be freed from the power of sin. It's been broken, but we have to learn uh, to live on the basis of our walk with the Holy Spirit, not the sin nature. And then when we're absent from the body, face-to-face with the Lord, then we're finally freed from the presence of sin or the sin nature. Now, in this slide, what I've tried to do is to uh, sort of graph it out. The uh, green area on the left represents life, like plants are green, and the gray area on the right represents uh, carnality, walking in the light versus walking in darkness. So the spiritual life goes from when we're first saved, and uh, should progress upward. It doesn't always go like that. It's, it's a very jagged line, as you know, and sometimes it's going up and sometimes it's going down. Hopefully it generally heads in an upward direction, but not necessarily. That would be lordship salvation. It begins with our spiritual birth, then we move to spiritual adulthood and spiritual maturity. Uh, the green area is spirituality, which is defined by having a positive walk with the Holy Spirit, being filled with the Spirit, walking by the Spirit, walking in the light. All of those terms are comparable. Uh, the dark area is carnality, when we're living according to the flesh or the sin nature. 
Now, at spiritual birth, we spend a little bit of time, see the horizontal line there, uh, we spend just a little bit of time in the green area and a lot of time in the gray area. We, we, we maximize on uh, living on the sin nature because that's been our habit pattern for the whole time we've lived up to the point of salvation. We just don't know any better. And so at, at five minutes after a person's saved, they're still living just like they did with all the bad habits and sin and everything else as they did before they're saved, but everything has actually changed. Now, the problem is, is that if they don't get the word and they don't grow, then 30 years later, they're still going to be living the same way. You can't judge their salvation on the basis of what you see in their life. As they grow to spiritual adulthood, they spend a little more time uh, walking by the spirit, a little less time walking by the sin nature until hopefully it reaches sort of a level of balance and they reach a level of spiritual maturity when they're spending more time uh, walking by the Spirit, less time walking in the flesh. Now, the Bible uses a lot of different phrases and words to describe each of these different categories. In terms of spiritual life, Jesus said to abide in me. And so uh, Paul used the phrase in Christ to refer to the absolute positional uh, relationship that we have at salvation. But when Jesus is talking to his disciples in John 15, he says abide in me because that's a relational uh, term, and sometimes we abide in him and sometimes we don't. Sometimes we walk by the Spirit, sometimes we don't. It's also called being in fellowship. Uh, it's not that we don't have absolute fellowship with God, but experientially that is broken when there's sin in the life. Uh, as long as we're uh, over in this area, there's forward momentum and we're growing. On the other side of it, we can walk according to the flesh, we're out of fellowship, and we can even get into reverse momentum where we start going backward. Now, the believer that is advancing is called something specific in the Scripture. And there's debate over this. If you hold to lordship salvation, which is basically the idea that uh, that comes out of a, a distortion of the fifth point in Calvinism. There's five points in Calvinism that's always remembered with the little acronym TULIP. And, uh, and TULIP is total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, and the perseverance of the saints. And by perseverance of the saints, they don't mean the perseverance of Christ in keeping us saved. They mean that the true believer is going to persevere until he uh, until he dies, he's never going to deny Christ. He, he can be carnal. He can have sin at times, but he's always going to be, be remain faithful to the Lord. And I'll give you one of the most egregious examples that I've ever heard in my life. Uh, in fact, this last uh, Monday, I had to go to Dallas for some things, and I had breakfast with uh, Roy Zook, who was, uh, along with John Walbridge, the general editor of the Bible Knowledge Commentary, and Roy was one of my professors in seminary uh, many years ago. And he's uh, the general editor for Bib Sack. And we were talking about free grace theology, and we were on this very point. And I, uh, we were talking, talking about uh, some of the things people believe. And I said, did you ask if he was aware of this example? And he wasn't. He was just appalled when I told him that uh, this happened about eight or nine years ago. I'm not sure exactly when, but a very uh, well-known pastor of the 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia was a man named James Montgomery Boyce. And Boyce wrote a lot of books. He was a very strong Calvinist, uh, Presbyterian, 
and uh, he was dying. He was in his late 70s, I believe, and the Lord was about to take him home. And at the same time, a man who was a friend of his and a colleague in ministry by the name of R.C. Sproul, some of you hear him on the radio here on KHCB, uh, R.C. Sproul is a preterist. That means he doesn't believe that uh, any of the events in Matthew 24 or Revelation 3 through 19 are going to be future. They all happened in the past. Most people don't realize that, but that's where he is. And he's also into lordship salvation up to his hair roots. And he was hosting a conference with his Ligonier ministry, and he stood up the first night and he said, our dear brother, Dr. Boyce, is uh, dying. He's on the edge of eternity and we need to pray for him that he will persevere to the end and not forsake Christ so we'll know he's saved. They did that every night, and then about the third night of the conference, uh, Dr. Boyce died, and, and uh, R.C. Sproul announced that Dr. Boyce had died and he did not renounce Christ, so we can be assured that he was actually saved. See, that's work salvation. It's gotten so bad, and this was what Roy was telling me the other day, that you have people today in in, in, in many different seminaries. One I know of is a uh, professor, Dr. Thomas Schreiner, at uh, uh, Southern Baptist Seminary. It's not, it is a Southern Baptist Seminary, but the name of the seminary is Southern Baptist Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. And Schreiner believes that we're actually saved by works. If we don't have the right kind of works plus faith, we're not saved. That's just Roman Catholicism. But what he's done is he has been honest with himself and he has taken his assumptions about lordship salvation and worked them out consistently. And you won't find too many people, including Dr. John MacArthur, who's also lordship, who will admit that they're really preaching a works gospel. And those who are in lordship, salvation, believe that the word overcomer is a synonym for being a believer. But it's not. Uh, The word overcomer, as we'll see, describes a class of believers. Now, what I want to do is just briefly in the four or five minutes remaining to me, just uh, skim over the conclusions, the challenges in the seven letters to the seven churches in Revelation, because they all end with a promise to the overcomer, a promise of some additional blessing that a overcomer believer will get if indeed they uh, follow and implement the recommendations in each of these letters. Remember, when you go through the seven letters to the seven churches, five of those seven churches are have nothing I mean, uh, two of the churches have nothing good said about them. Two have nothing bad said about them. And um, in each of those letters, they're, with the exception of the two, they're told that they're doing certain things. They, they failed in certain areas. But if they repent, that is, if they change, and then usually you have a phrase like this in Revelation 2-7, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. In other words, if you really listen to me and put it into practice, then you're going to stop doing what I told you to stop doing. And if you stop doing what I told you to stop doing, then you're an overcomer. And if you do that and quit being a failure, then there's going to be some additional rewards and blessings for you. To the church at Ephesus, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I'll give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. 
so that we saw this in the new in the new Jerusalem the other day that the tree of life is in the uh, as the river of life comes out of the throne of God in the new Jerusalem the tree of life grows there but there's only going to be a certain segment of believers that are going to have access to that and those are overcomers now what exactly is an overcomer most people think it refers to sin and in a sense it is but that's not the focal point it's not because dealing with the sin problem is phase one. Dealing with the influence of the world and sanctification is phase two. In John 16:33, Jesus said, These things I have spoken to you, says it to his disciples the night before he goes to the cross. I've spoken these to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribula- tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome, perfect tense. I have already overcome. It's completed. It's over and done with. Before he went to the cross, he overcame the world. But on the cross, he dealt with sin. So these are two different issues. The sin problem is getting saved. Overcoming the world is getting sanctified it is salvation being saved from the presence of sin. Then, in a similar way, John, who the Apostle John, who wrote 1 John, in 1 John 2.14 states, uh, in the last part, I've written to you, young men, because you are strong. The word of God abides in you. That's a word. Abide is a word for fellowship. And you have overcome the wicked one. That's not salvation, justification, that is phase two related to fellowship. And then in 1 John 5, 4, whatever is born of God, and that phrase isn't a phrase that talks about being regenerate. It's talking about how a regenerate person is supposed to live. Uh, For whatever is born of God, that is, whoever is living like the person born of God overcomes the world. Notice the world is the object of overcoming, not sin, but the world. So it's not a phase one justification issue, it's a phase two issue. This is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. So in the letter to Smyrna, uh, Jesus says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. We studied that, why this lesson needs to be linked to that lesson in Revelation last week is because we saw that the second death, this doesn't mean that they personally would go into the lake of fire, but that if they don't uh, grow and advance in sanctification, then their rewards will be destroyed in the lake of fire. Uh, Revelation 2.17, we're told to him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna to eat. So there's special banquet privileges. Uh, I will give him a white stone, and on the stone a new name written, which no one knows except him who receives it. White stones were used like tickets to get into uh, special events, to get into the uh, uh, Olympics. And so it's like getting a free pass to get into the uh, ringside seats at uh, at any any special event. And so this shows that the overcomer gets special access and privilege that's not available to every believer in heaven. Uh, Revelation 2, 26 to 28, the overcomer, uh, verse 27, shall rule them, that is the rest of the world, in association with Christ with the rod of iron. Rod of iron phrase comes out of Psalm 2. The one who, the Messiah will rule with the rod of iron. They should, and so the overcomer believer rules, co-rules with Christ and receives an award recognition called the Morning Star. Revelation 3, 5, 
Uh, he has a special uniform. He overcomes, shall be clothed in white garments. See, I wanted to wear this tonight, so make sure that uh, you sort of had a preview. Just joking. He who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments, and I will not blot out his name from the book of life. That doesn't mean your name can be blotted out, but it is an emphasis on the fact that you certainly won't lose. You'll gain, um, and your name will be confessed before God, before the Father, and before his angels. Revelation 3.12, he who overcomes, I'll make him a pillar in the temple of my God. This is, a again, a form of recognition of uh, accomplishments. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes out of heaven from my God, and I will write on him my new name. Uh, furthermore, uh, again, a way of expressing the, our, uh, the believers co-reigning with Christ. To him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. And so you see, we've gone through this many, many times. So that's just kind of a brief overview. Then we saw in our Revelation study a week ago, Tuesday, uh, he who overcomes shall inherit all things. It's an inheritance issue. It's not a justification issue. It's not a salvation issue. It is a reward issue. So when we come back to and look at this passage in Hebrews 12, when it says that pursue peace and holiness, that's advancing in your spiritual life. We'll come back and talk about that more last time. Without which, that is, if you haven't advanced in some level to maturity, then you won't see the Lord. Those special privileges to the overcomer are what that phrase, seeing the Lord, it is a special uh, intimacy that overcomers will have with the Lord Jesus Christ in the millennial kingdom and on into eternity. Now, the way we pursue peace is indicated by the next verse because it starts off with an adverbial participle of means. How do you pursue peace? How do you pursue holiness? By looking carefully, in a self-evaluation term, by looking carefully at three three things and watching out for one negative example. So we'll get to that uh, next Thursday night. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word this evening and to be challenged by these things, and we pray that we might uh, remember that the focal point is to pursue peace with all men and to also uh, be uh, strengthened to pursue peace with all men, and to pursue sanctification, our spiritual growth. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.